I'd like to welcome you guys today to the Critical Care Conference. It's my great pleasure while Mike McCurdy skis in Maine. And uh, he just texted me, FYI, that he's cameraing in to watch this presentation and then sent me a picture of the snow and how beautiful it is and then said, that's not all, and showed me a picture of the beer bottle that he's drinking while he watches this lecture. So he's probably having more fun than we are right now, but, but that's going to change in about 30 seconds. So it's my great pleasure to introduce Burton Lee. So Burton and I go way back now, all the way back to 2002, and when I was an intern at Washington Hospital Center. He's actually the reason why I chose to go into critical care medicine and then follow that with a fellowship in pulmonary diseases. He did his training, his medical school at Harvard Medical School, and then his internship, residency, and fellowship at, at um, MGH, not Maryland General Hospital but Massachusetts General Hospital. Um, and since then has had a lot of different titles and currently is the head of internal medicine at Kajabi Medical Center in Kenya, is a faculty member at MedStar Washington Hospital Center and associate professor of medicine at Georgetown, and is also a senior consultant for critical care education. And this lecture actually falls during our winter education block, which is a two-week block, and we've incorporated this lecture into our education block. So without further ado, Dr. Lee is going to talk about ethics, human nature, and scientific evidence. All right, thanks, Nirav. And uh, Mike, uh, wherever you are right now, I hope uh, you can hear us, and thanks for joining us. Um, so um, this lecture is about ethics, and I think when you hear the word ethics, sometimes people kind of tune out, <laughs> and people uh, pretend to be interested, because we all, we all ought to be interested, but not everybody is. Um, and also, ethics sometimes you know, involves very difficult topics, like end of life and things like that. And those are very, very important, uh, but that's not the kind of ethics we're talking about. We're actually talking about ethics that relates to uh, human nature in general. So again, not focusing on maybe the sociopath or the criminals or those real ethical violators who cheat a lot of money and, and ruin people's lives, but we want to explore uh, uh, the ethics that, that involves all, uh, all of us in this room, uh, hopefully normal uh, human beings, and then how that applies to uh, scientific evidence and research. So since it's a talk on ethics, I should declare that I have no conflict of interest. And um, before we start the actual uh, you know, scientific talks, uh, I want to give you two really important background information uh, that I think pertains to ethics that, that I want to put everybody on the same page. So for sake of time, I'll just quickly summarize two seminal articles about ethics, okay? Uh, one is a, uh, a pretty interesting paper from 2010 by Harvey, um, and this is a, a study where they paid um, 151 subjects $300 to participate in the research study. So it's a pretty healthy sum of money. And the research uh, studies as follows. So these 151 people were given $300, and they were told that the money was given by one of those two companies. I think you can see those two uh, um, company logos on, the, on your left there. And, and it turns out those company logos are actually fake. They're not real companies, but, but, uh, but they pretended to have been the companies that gave the money to these 151 subjects. And then as you can see, uh, what the subject uh, had to do was they just 
They just simply had to look at a whole, whole bunch of paintings uh, from the uh, 13th to the 20th century and just tell them, you know, what they thought about the, about the paintings. It's a pretty good deal for a research subject, yeah? Um, and, um, and you might recognize that, uh, you know, those paintings on your right from some of the museums you might have gone to and so forth. But they just simply said, I loved it, I didn't like it, and just rated it on a scale. Okay? But if you notice next to the paintings, there is a company logo next to it. Okay? There was not a lot of description uh, saying why it's there, but it was just there. And the idea was some of the subjects were randomly paid by one of those two companies, supposedly. Then they had to rate the paintings to see how much they liked it. Okay? And so one of the things that they did was they were asked uh, at the end of the study, do you think these companies and their logos affected your subjective uh, 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 rating of these paintings? What do you think they said? No, they said no because, you know, what, we're all like objective people, you know. Uh, we know that we were paid by these companies, but, you know, I can sort of adjust for that kind of bias and it had no influence on me at all. Okay? Then they show the ratings and then what happened? Okay, so the graph on the left were the paintings that were sponsored by that particular company. And as you can see, it was a significant influence in whether or not they liked a particular rating, um, um, painting. And by the way, uh, I think the one, that third picture there, I think is a, is a painting by Degas. And, 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 and so like a lot of people might like that particular painting. So it wasn't that it was always associated with that company logo. It was random. So, so even if that was a popular painting, it was randomized so that uh, it would randomly fall into either company, okay, whether it was sponsored or not. Okay. Now, the other interesting part of this, and, and perhaps the um, disturbing part of this, is that as they were looking at the paintings, they weren't just sitting in a room like this. They were actually in a functional MRI scanner so that they could see which part of the brain was active as they made their judgments about whether, whether they liked the painting. And the idea is, if they really, really liked the painting, a particular part of the brain would light up. If they were, didn't necessarily like it, but they kind of felt obligated to like it because of the company's sponsorship, okay, then, a, then a different part of your brain would light up. Okay? So they wanted to see, do people actually know uh, that they really love this painting sincerely, or are they simply being influenced by the sponsoring company? So what it, what it turned out, actually, was uh, that uh, the ventromedial prefrontal cortex was the, was the part that lit up in, in, in most of these subjects, suggesting that it, it was a true preference, that they really experienced pleasure from looking at the painting when it was sponsored by the company that supposedly gave them $300, okay? So this concept is called reciprocity. Now, reciprocity is not a bad thing. This is normal human nature. That's why this lecture is called Ethics and Human Nature, meaning that if I do something nice to Nirav, okay, he's going to hopefully appreciate it, and then there is a sense that we all have that he wants to do nice things back to me, and it's just how relationships work. So that in itself is not a bad thing, of course. Okay? That, that is actually a good thing and, and, and then positive for society. 
But of course, the question is, what happens if that starts to influence our scientific decision-making or research? Um, the other key uh, uh, seminal uh, research article that I want to present before we get into the actual talks about research is, um, are these set of studies from Dan Ariely. I think many of you know who he is, but he's a professor at Duke who's done some very interesting studies. And he did this set of studies uh, uh, when he was um, doing a sabbatical year at MIT. Okay, and if you want to read more about it, there's a reference up there. He's written a book called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. Um, but anyway, um, I'm just going to summarize a whole bunch of studies into two major sets. Study number one is a very casual observation that's very interesting. Okay, so what he did here was he went into a dormitory at MIT, and I think most of you can relate to a college dorm situation, and in um, among all the rooms, uh, there's a kitchen that is shared by all the students. And in the kitchen, there is a refrigerator. Okay, so you walk into the refrigerator, and what he did was he, he, he placed inside the refrigerator six individual cans of Coke. Okay, no explanation, no name, just six individual cans of Coke. What do you think would happen to these six individual cans of Coke? Okay, so essentially he's plotting a Kaplan-Meier survival curve <laughs> over 72 hours to see what happens to cans of Coke. Okay, and not surprisingly, uh, the cans of Coke disappeared. It was all gone. It was zero survival at 72 hours. Okay, does that surprise anybody in this room? Okay, and, and, and you don't have to raise your hand, but have you ever taken a food item from a college dormitory? <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't labeled, okay? Well, the interesting part of this observation is that then he went to a different dormitory, and this time he did something a little more odd, which is he took six $1 bills, and he put that on the refrigerator, okay? Now what do you think happened? Yeah, and the interesting thing is, actually, nobody touched the dollar bill. And the observation that he makes is in the kitchen, in both kitchens, actually, apparently there was a vending machine that sold Coke. And how much does it cost to get the Coke? It's $1. So why is it that students took freely the cans of Coke, so that nothing survived in three days, and yet nobody touched the dollar bills. Okay? Because dollar bills and Coke, it's the exact same economic value, uh, and it should be treated the same way um, if we're being rational. So uh, then he then expanded on this idea, and then he did a series of experiments that, again, I'm going to just summarize for you briefly in the following way. Um, he, he did an experiment with, um, with, with a mathematical test. Okay? Why? Well, what are MIT students known for? It's probably their prowess in mathematics. So what he did here was he, uh, he composed a test that consisted of 20 math questions. And from what I understand, the questions themselves were not 
like incredibly difficult for an MIT student, but it was still challenging, but more so, you only had five minutes to do 20 questions. So there wasn't a lot of time to do these things. Um, and the idea was, more questions you got correct, more money you make. Okay? Now, these are college students who are probably strapped for cash, so they're going to be motivated to answer as many of these questions as possible. So there are three different conditions, so let me walk you through the conditions. Okay? So condition A is, let's say all of you are, are taking this exam, okay? and let's say uh, I'm the proctor, so you'll be given five minutes, and so you have five minutes to complete this test, uh, then I would receive your test, and then I would grade them, and then, of course, depending upon how well you did, I would give your score back, and then you would earn the amount of money that is proportional to your test score. It's a fairly uh, standard situation. And now, as you can see, the average score for these MIT students was what? It was 3.5 out of 20. So it was either very difficult, but certainly not enough time to complete all 20. In fact, it was so difficult, the highest score was 10. And how many people got a perfect score? That is all 20 out of 20. Nobody. Because okay? statistically speaking, it was impossible for a human being, even an MIT student, to complete all 20 questions correctly. Everybody okay with that baseline scenario? Then for the, uh, the second set of experiments, he then uh, had a similar situation. So you'd all be in the room. You would take the same kind of a test. I'm the proctor, except who does the grading this time? I don't grade it. You grade it yourself. Okay. But to make it a little more interesting, not only do you grade it yourself, you then shred your test, okay? And then you claim your score, okay? And then you walk up to me and then I pay you according to whatever it is that you've claimed, okay? Now, knowing human nature, what's gonna happen? <laughs> okay, score will go up. Now, it's worth thinking for a second, okay? Because what's the likelihood that if, if you cheated, that I would be able to prove absolutely that you cheated. Okay? I mean, I, I could never, I could suspect it, or other people could suspect it as well, but I will never be able to prove to myself or to you that you definitely cheated. And this is a different group, so you had no idea what the average score was only 3.5, that, that nobody had gotten a perfect score and so forth, so you wouldn't know. Okay? So in other words, you have zero possibility of actually getting caught in some ways, right? So what do you think happened to the score? Does everybody cheat? Do some people cheat? Does nobody cheat? <laughs> what do you think happened? Some people cheat, yeah? How about, how, about, how about other thoughts? How many of you would cheat? You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> okay. Well, it turns out uh, that with the shredding, the score did go up, and it, so it went up to 6.2, and now people are starting to claim 20 out of 20, which we know statistically is not possible, right? So that's pretty clear that, that, that those guys are cheating, 
and they're blatantly cheating because it's not statistically possible to get anything close to 20, right? Now comes another interesting question, which is for those people who claim 20 out of 20, I mean, what percentage of the people cheat maximally? Again, is it everybody? Is it half? Is it 5%? 30%? Yeah, I think I just heard. And it's worth thinking because if we have no, if we have very low likelihood of getting caught for dishonesty, would we all cheat maximally? Right? Well, it turns out it's actually very, very, very rare. Even though there's really no way that you would be caught for cheating, only 0.2% of people cheated maximally. Well, why is this important? Well, what, what, what Aerially and, and, and others suggest is that actually that probably in a room this size, there may be one person here who's a sociopath. Okay? <laughs> okay? So you can turn to your neighbor and, and see who that is. Okay? But there's probably one person here. Okay? A lot of fingers are going around here. Okay? Who's a sociopath. That is, you have no conscience, and you're willing to cheat all the way. But actually, for most of us in this room, we have a conscience. So we're maybe willing to cheat just enough so that we don't feel bad about ourselves, but we're all willing to cheat. Does that make sense? Okay. So we all have a conscience because of our mother or, or because of our religion or, or whatever it is. So we are cheating, but we're not willing to cheat all the way, which is kind of a good thing. You know, we have sort of a filter and a limit that we place on ourselves. So that's kind of encouraging about human nature, unless you're dealing with a sociopath. Okay. All right. Then finally is, is situation C. Very similar to situation B. You're in the room. You take the test. I'm the proctor. You grade yourself. You shred the exam as well. Okay? But this time, small twist. Instead of you, uh, uh, you getting the money from me directly for whatever test score you claim, I actually give you a token. And whatever token I give you, you take that uh, apparently 50 yards or so from this room, and then you get the money from some other location. Okay? Otherwise, it's the exact same process. Now what happens? Does cheating change? Yeah, if it didn't, it probably wouldn't be part of the presentation. That's one way to think about it. But yeah, it actually changed significantly. So it actually went out further. Now the average score is similar to the highest score at, at baseline condition. And of course, people are claiming 20 out of 20 as well. Now what happens, though? What percentage of people claim the maximum? That is, what percentage of people cheat all the way? And what percentage of people lose whatever conscience that they had? What do you think will happen? Well, what happened was went up to 16%. There's a dramatic increase from 0.2 to 16% uh, of people who are willing to cheat maximally. Okay? Now, this is uh, some people call the non-cash token effect, or just a token effect. What does that mean? Uh, what that suggests is that if you're dealing with money, like in the example of a Coke and dollar bills, right? that if you have um, Coke, 
for some reason, even though it's essentially the same thing, we have no qualms about stealing that. But for whatever reason, uh, we think that stealing cash directly is wrong, unethical, so we're less likely to do that. And, and, and again, what the authors uh, point out and, uh, and wonder about is what is the effect in systems of our society that don't deal directly with cash? So what systems don't deal directly with cash that involves a lot of money? So they point out things like stockbrokers, Wall Street. Is there unethical behavior in, on Wall Street? Yeah. The legal system. Are there unethical behavior in the legal system? And then what about the system that we deal with, which is the medical system? That is, how many doctors deal directly with cash? Right? I mean, there are some who do, of course, okay? but the vast majority of us deal with insurance companies. So are doctors more apt to cheat because we deal with, let's say, Medicare or some private insurer? Or... What we're hoping to focus on a little bit is what about when it comes to scientific research? Even though research often results in billions of dollars of spending by pharmaceutical companies, et cetera, does that actually influence the ethical behavior of scientists and physicians? Okay. So here's an article from 2012 um, in the New York Times. This was a, uh, a hospital in Florida that was uh, uh, caught uh, for performing cardiac cath and stents in patients who did not need them. Have you ever heard of this happening? Does that surprise anybody? Okay, and, and I believe, I mean, you guys might be more familiar here in Baltimore, but, uh, but apparently something similar happened here in Baltimore around the same time, okay? So, so maybe dealing with insurance rather than cash might increase uh, unethical behavior in doctors as well. Um, and this is called a Dartmouth Atlas, I believe, and, uh, and many of you may or have already seen this. Uh, this is an interesting uh, graph that shows on the y-axis uh, various um, states that are ranked according to their, their quality of medical care. So they took 24 quality measures that, that essentially everybody thought was based on strong scientific evidence and consensus, and they said, well, if, you, if I look at all the different states, how do they actually perform? And as you can see, some states do better than others. Um, sorry, I can't read all of those things, but obviously the ones on the left upper part, those states seem to have done very better. I think Iowa's up there, and maybe Utah, or is it Vermont that's up there? And then those states way on the bottom, which I think includes places like Texas, uh, seem to do very poorly. Does anybody know what's on the x-axis? And actually, this particular one is the number of specialists per 10,000 Medicare be um, beneficiaries. And you're right. The more specialists there are, there's more spending. And yet quality actually seems to be inversely proportional to basically us in this room, right? Because I think we're all specialists of one type or another. And so, you know, I think this is not news to most of you, but it's estimated that we waste $2.5 trillion per year, and about 30% of what, what happens in this country is estimated to be unnecessary, as exemplified by those unnecessary cardiac cath. 
And I think you're aware that there are you know, various campaigns by various societies trying to bring this to our conscience, trying to you know, reduce unnecessary spending, uh, including the Choosing Wisely campaign by the, uh, the ABIM and the American College of Physicians. Um, what, what about when it comes to medical errors? Um, is there a hospital out there that doesn't make any medical errors? Well, well of course, um, you know, everybody does, unfortunately. This is a uh, review of uh, four Boston teaching hospitals uh, where they took what they have already considered clear iatrogenic events that led a patient to come to the ICU. So this is clearly a bad outcome, a complication from some mistake that was made. Okay? And they just simply want to know are people telling the truth about what happened? There was already consensus that these were iatrogenic events, and they wanted to know were they documented clearly in the chart that this is why they came in. The other one was um, that it was documented that the patient or the family was informed that this was an iatrogenic event. Or maybe you know, because of fear of lawsuits, fear of embarrassment, you know, all those are obviously real concerns, uh, maybe at least an incident report was filed to the hospital so that the hospital has the opportunity to learn from this mistake, you know, treat it as a root cause analysis perhaps, and have the opportunity to improve from here on. How often do you think these things happen? 100%? 50%? 10%? Yeah. So it's actually very, very low. Very unusual, right? Very unusual. What about medical education? Now, most of you are fellows or beyond, is that correct? Okay, so um, what about in medical education? Um, this is uh, actually a pretty uh, well-known study now, but uh, maybe you've seen this or not, I'm not sure. But this is a, this is a paper from um, University of Pittsburgh um, where they took uh, 236 GI applicants to their fellowship. Okay, and as you know, uh, GI along with cardiology are probably some of the more competitive uh, fellowships within internal medicine. So what do you need to do to show that you're worthy of being a GI doctor? You need to publish papers, okay? So how many of you have published papers in this room? Okay, it looks like almost everybody, which is great, okay? So what they want to know is of the applicants who claim to have published papers, they just wanted to know, is it true? <laughs> so what they did here was they waited, actually, I think about two years to make sure that there was enough time to have lapsed just in case something is actually in press. Okay? Then they went to great length, as you can see from those five things. Actually, they waited 18 months, it looks like. And then, and, and then they um, waited um, those 18 months and then went through great length to verify whether or not when somebody claimed um, a publication, whether it was really true. How often do you think a GI applicant would lie about their publication? <laughs> okay. How about a pulmonary applicant or a critical care applicant? <laughs> okay. And actually, it was frightening, yeah? Now, now this is of the people who claim a publication. Not 30% of people lie because we're only studying ones who, could, who, 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 who claimed 
uh, a publication, but obviously a lot of people claim to have a publication, but about a third of the people actually, it couldn't be verified, okay? Now, just in case you want to point your finger and say, I knew those GI guys were not very <laughs> ethical, okay? They've duplicated this among uh, urologists, I think, and then also uh, um, uh, OBGYN residents, okay? So it seems to be part of actually human nature that unfortunately, we're all kind of liars. <laughs> okay. Now, the, again, the disturbing thing here is if GI applicants are willing to lie about something that is this easily verifiable, what happens when these GI doctors become researchers? You think they're, they're willing to drop data points? You think they're willing to do multiple testing rather than having an a priori hypothesis? Yeah, and that's the, the disturbing question, right? So uh, here's a systematic review of, uh, uh, of different meta-analyses um, of various scientists. So this is not just doctors, but this is uh, uh, um, all kinds of scientists, including uh, doctors. And they asked uh, these scientists, uh, how often have you fabricated, falsified, or modified data? And they also asked them, among other questions, how often have you dropped data points, uh, I'm sorry, uh, data points, uh, or patients on gut feeling, or changed the methods or results because of a funding source pressure? How often do you think this happens? Well, when you ask, how often do you do it? They said, 2% and 34%. Now, the 2% might be sort of equivalent to cheating all the way, right? This is a pretty blatant kind of an ethical violation for research, right? That's fortunately not common, but it looks like most of us, well, not most of them, sorry, about a third of us are admitting to the fact that we frequently change um, data points uh, for our convenience or because we get a publication. What if you ask them, you know, I know you wouldn't do it, but or what about those other people? Of course, that number goes up. And again, you could quibble about whether it's 30% or 70%. I think the point is, unfortunately, uh, there is a lot of dishonesty even in scientific research. So uh, here's a pretty classic paper by Alice Nielsen in JAMA 2003. And they're just simply looking at, okay, what happens to the results of randomized controlled trials if you have an industry tie, right? So th they found 370 randomized controlled trials, and they put in a, a scale of one to six. One means that this drug does not work. Six means this drug seems to work, and it should be the new standard of care, okay? The average score, by the way, was five, okay? Um, and then they divided the studies into those that were nonprofit, those that were mixed, that is, there's some partial funding by the NIH, let's say, and then the rest by the pharmaceutical company, and then finally those, those studies that were for-profit sponsorship. Well, what do you think happened to the median score as there was more and more industry tie? Okay. Not surprisingly, there was a strong correlation with uh, the funding source and then the likelihood that it's going to favor um, the funding source. In fact, the percent 
getting a six, right, that this should be the new standard care, went up from 16% all the way up to the majority, up to 51% of the time when the, when the, when the for-profit company was, was involved. Um, to focus in on uh, one particular drug, you know, just to give you an example, this is a recent paper just published last year in, in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Uh, this is an analysis of 37 different systematic reviews. So, so 37 um, different studies looking at the efficacy of, uh, of drugs like, uh, uh, like Tamiflu for influenza. And they looked at whether or not the authors had conflict of interest or not. And what do you think happened in terms of the percent of the studies that actually said, I think this drug works? Very much as you expected, there's dramatic differences, right? 88% versus 17%. Now, studies like this doesn't necessarily say that because there's a conflict of interest that it's absolutely therefore false, but it does strongly suggest that there's a huge bias that we need to be careful of, okay? So, so at least, especially for those of you in training, if you're not used to looking at the paper as to who's funding it, okay, then beware, because you're actually not paying attention to something that's potentially very, very important um, in terms of scientific uh, nature. Okay, so uh, I think most of you are familiar with the story, but uh, there's been many articles written about it, even in the popular press, about the value of Tamiflu. Uh, this article in The Atlantic says, you know, has the U.S. wasted $1.5 billion on an ineffective drug? Here's an article in the BBC uh, from, a, from a professor from Oxford think, you know, saying, I think the whole 500 million pounds has not benefited human health in any way, and we may have harmed people. Um, so I know what some of you are thinking, right? Because, you know, I mean... I mean, part of this should be caught by peer review, right? If, if, if people are dropping data points or modifying data um, or they're doing unethical things or uh, if they're not really declaring you know, their, their conflict of interest, all that should be brought up to the surface. So what about peer review? Um, here's a, actually a, a kind of a disturbing article by Bohannon in Science published two years ago. Um, and what they did was they basically made up a fake paper um, and they submitted it to a whole bunch of journals to see how good the review process is. Okay, now, to be fair, this was for open access journal, not necessarily some of the standard journals. Um, and what they found was that when they submitted 304 submissions with just a totally a fake article that had all kinds of problems, only 98 rejected them, okay? but 157 accepted them. Well, what's the source of these journals? Well, there's a whole bunch in the US, a whole bunch in Nigeria, a whole bunch in India, but essentially all over the globe. Okay? Now, for those of you who are applying to GI and, and you're thinking about you know, fabricating your, your, your publication results, this article might actually encourage you that you don't have to fabricate it, <laughs> okay? Maybe you could just submit it to one of these and it'll just get accepted. Now, I wanna put a little bit of, uh, of, uh, of a practical feel for what kind of article they did. So here's a, uh, another article uh, that, that was in a popular newspaper, or a, a, like a regular newspaper, 
uh, in Canada. And so um, I think it's Mr. Spears, who's a reporter, said, I don't really believe that that's really true. I mean, is scientific you know, uh, editorial process and review process, is it really that lax? Okay? So he decided to see for himself. What did he do? He took three different real papers that's been published and he fused them. Okay? He literally spliced one article and put it in the other. So one article was a real geology article. The other article was a hematology article. And third was a wine science article. Okay? So, I mean, it's, it's really fabulous. So therefore, uh, the entire article was plagiarized. Because okay? he just simply lifted and copied from these three sources. And he, he made up terms like seismic platelets. <laughs> okay? Um, and as you can see in the picture, he put a picture of Mars, mainly because it just looked interesting. Okay? And then apparently he put in unrelated graphs. It, it, it's not even referred to in the text and just put some random pictures up there. He used names of baseball players and U.S. senators as authors. Uh, the university's fake and he submitted it to 18 different places. And what do you think happened? He was rejected by one. <laughs> no response from eight. Eight chose to accept it, and I think the most interesting one is one said, if you revise it, we'll, we'll accept it. <laughs> okay? Again, I don't mean to poke fun at the entire process. Obviously, there is a lot of good science, a lot of careful uh, you know, review that happens in there. But if you are the kind of person who comes to rounds and says, here's the article, this is why I think we should do X, okay? then you might be misleading yourself as well as the team if you don't have, uh, if you don't take the time to think about the source and the credibility uh, of the paper, and if you don't do critical review of the article, okay? Now, I know some of you, especially those in training, said, you know what, it's too much hassle to critically review a paper, because it just takes a lot of effort, and it looks like there's a lot of problems, so why don't we stick to guidelines, okay? And guidelines, of course, it's already been vetted theoretically by a whole bunch of experts, and many of those experts are people that you should trust uh, in theory and so forth. And it's, and it's, and it's put together by the various um, professional societies. Well, at least one, one reason that you need to be careful is this paper that was published in 2011 in BMJ. Um, what they looked at were, were of the authors of the guidelines, whether there was a conflict of interest two years before and one year after since the publication of these North American clinical guidelines in the past decade. What they found was once again very disturbing that of the American Diabetic Association and the, uh, and the other guidelines over there, uh, about 80% of them had conflict of interest. And then, um, especially the specialty guidelines as opposed to government-sponsored guidelines, there was a huge um, um, percentage that had conflict of interest. And then a, a, um, a different article by Lenzer cites that of the chairs of these clinical policy committees, vast majority, 71% of chairs and 90% of co-chairs had financial conflict of interest. Now, I know that people who are on the panels are probably saying, I'm objective, I'm an expert, I'm not influenced by this conflict of interest, just like the people 
who are looking at the ratings of the paintings that we described. Okay? And, and, and whether it has a true influence or not, obviously that's something for you to decide and, and, and then for our scientific community to decide whether this is acceptable or not. Now, one solution to all of this is what? Is disclosure, right? So we should all be open about disclosure. So here is, unfortunately, another disturbing study about how good disclosure is. I'm sure you've all read articles where the authors say, yeah, you know, I have no conflict of interest or that you know, I'm paid by this company or that company. So here is a uh, study in, um, in PLOS Medicine that looked at uh, um, cases that were thought already to be clear violations of the Federal False Claim Act for illegal off-labeling uh, uh, and drug marketing. So then th these were cases that the federal government has already said there's a problem here, okay? And you've been, you know, you've been cited for this false claim. Then they waited uh, and saw for the next 36 months publications that were done by these same authors, okay, who were already cited by the government. And they found 404 publications. And they just want to know, since they were already they clearly had a conflict of interest. And in fact, the conflict is, is, uh, is not only a conflict of interest, but it's also cited as being illegal. How many of these people would actually admit to having this conflict of interest? So they basically looked at whether or not uh, there was no disclosure form filed, or they filed it, but they said there was no conflict of interest, or they filed it, but they didn't mention the company, they mentioned something else, perhaps, but not the company that they were cited for. And then uh, whether they filed, and, and then they mentioned the company, but they kind of inaccurately described the nature of the conflict. And finally, uh, adequate disclosure. Again, if you were paying attention to some of the classic uh, experiments that I, that I referred to earlier, which one do you think was the least likely in this list of five options? I think I'm hearing people saying no conflict of interest. Why is that the least common? Yeah, because it's probably the most blatant lie, and there's only a few sociopaths out there. Okay, okay, and that's essentially right. Yeah. So, adequate disclosure was unfortunately only 15%, even though they all clearly had a conflict of interest here, right? Um, and the least likely was was a blatant lie, but everything else was either like. For example, the most common one was no disclosure form file. And why would that be the most common? Well, you could probably always claim, oh, you know what, I meant to file it, I just didn't get around to it. You know? um, but the bottom line is, as far as the accuracy of those uh, disclosures is maybe suspect in many cases. Okay, and so I'm telling you I have no conflict of interest, and you'll have to either trust my word or not, maybe. I don't know, okay? Um, and I think this is my final uh, study. Um, here's a paper in, the, in one of the legal journals, out of all things, by Kane. Um, I think the researchers are from Yale. Uh, and they actually devised a very uh, intriguing study, and we'll close with this, okay? Um, what they try to do is to simulate a doctor-patient relationship 
or a lawyer-client relationship where the information and knowledge and skill is clearly asymmetric, right? Obviously, we know a lot more than our patients do. So they try to, to, to create an experiment where they're trying to simulate a client versus an advisor relationship. But the task was fairly simple and, and fairly routine. That is, they had a, a, uh, a glass jar filled with coins and your job was to estimate how much money is in that jar, okay? And the more accurate the client was, the client makes more money, okay? So it's fairly straightforward. And what happened was the jar was given to the advisor though, not to the client, and the advisor got to hold it, shake it, look at it, turn it upside down, and spend as much time as he or she wanted then the job of the advisor was to put out a, a small piece of paper that says, I think there is you know, $21 in the jar. Okay? And then you would give that slip to your client, and the client would have the opportunity to look at the jar from 10 foot away, but not touch it, hold it, for only for about 10 seconds. Okay? So again, they're trying to kind of simulate this asymmetry of information and skill and knowledge. So, um, so basically, um, uh, the client is paid based on their accuracy, and the question is, will the client believe the advisor or not? Now, it gets a little bit complicated, so, so please make sure that you uh, do your best to, uh, to follow here. Okay? So under the baseline condition, everybody's incentives were the same. That is, the client got paid more if they were accurate in their estimate, but the advisor also put in his or her own estimate, and the advisor made a side income as well. So the more close to the real number the advisor put down, he or she would also make more money. So essentially, there's three paying schemes here if you're following. Okay? The client gets paid the more accurate their estimate is. Okay, That's one. Advisor gets paid if the client is more accurate. That's the second payment. And the third payment is, independent of that, advisor makes his or her own, um, her own estimate, and you get paid if you're close to the real target. Okay? So the advisor's own estimate serves as their internal control, if you will, like to see what he or she's really thinking, as opposed to what he or she may be advising. Does that make sense? Okay? So here's a baseline condition. Okay? The advisor's incentive then is what? Is to be accurate, right? Because more accurate you are, uh, the client will hopefully follow your advice and you would theoretically make more money, okay? Uh, and there is disclosure, that is, the client clearly knows uh, how um, you're being paid. So the advisor's own estimate is $15.62. Uh, but for whatever reason, the advice that the advisor gives to the client is $16.48, so slightly different. And then client, of course, doesn't have to, to you know, do exactly what the advisor says. It makes his own or her uh, own estimate, $14.21. And the client receives $9.84 as an average payoff. So, that, so we'll call that the baseline or 100% payoff. Now, in the second set of conditions, uh, the advisor's incentive changes. Advisor makes more money if client bids high. Okay? 
So this is might be more similar to, let's say, like a stockbroker make more money if the client buys more stocks, right? Or maybe the pulmonologist might make more money if you do more bronchoscopies and so forth, okay? But this time, there is no disclosure, okay? The client does not know that. So what happens? Well, the advisor's own estimate is 1679, and what do you think happens to the advisor's advice to the client? Does that change? If the incentives change? Yeah, it goes up to $20. So it goes up maybe about 25% or so. Then what does the client do? Client doesn't know that, that this incentive scheme is now like this. So do you think the client is influenced by the advisor? Yeah. Okay. And they make a little bit less money. Not dramatically, but make a little bit less money. Okay? Now comes what we're all hoping for, is that people will be honest about their conflict of interest. You'll be disclosed in all the journals, and every talk will have something that says, I have a conflict of interest, and that would all be honest, which is situation C. So the, the, the scheme is similar as B. So the advisor's incentive is clearly... Uh, to get a high estimate because the higher the client bids, more money he makes. And so finally, there's honest disclosure. So now the client knows, oh, okay, so the, 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 uh, he makes more money if I bid high. Okay? So the advisor's own estimate is similar to condition B, 1695. And now, finally, we have a disclosure. Right? So what's going to happen to the advice given? It was 1648. They decided to cheat more because it obviously benefited them more by increasing the bid to $20.16. You can see there's a clear discrepancy between their own estimate and advice that they gave. What happens now that now they know that the client knows how you're paid? How many people think you'll go up? First of all, two cynical people up there, or maybe three cynical people. Okay. How many people think it goes down? Okay, probably majority of you. How many people think it makes no difference at all? Okay, maybe about a third of you, okay? So we're kind of split all over the place, okay? Well, interestingly, it actually went up, okay? It went up significantly, and you can see the discrepancy is much higher, and the client does adjust for a little bit, but they actually make more money. What happened? I thought disclosures that we do before lectures, all the things that we sign before conferences, all the things that the authors sign for papers should protect us from this kind of conflict of interest. Okay. Well, again, what the authors speculate uh, here is what they call moral licensing. What does that mean? Basically means, you know what? I told you, so now it's your responsibility, and it frees me up <laughs> from that moral burden. Before it was restraining me, so I was behaving myself, but since I told you, well, you know what? What the heck, right? <laughs> okay. The other thing that they introduce is the burden of disclosure, that is that the, that the client feels kind of awkward about this relationship, you know? And they don't, know, they don't know what to quite do with it, and they don't quite adjust for the bias that, that exists in here. Okay? 
So, so for me, what this says is, you know, clearly having the issues of reciprocity and non-cash token effect is reality. This is part of who we are and the society that we live in. I don't think it's, that's ever going to go away. And also human nature says that we're all going to be dishonest. We are already dishonest, okay? But there are things that restrain our dishonesty to a hopefully a more tolerable uh, limit in our society. But currently, in, in the state of scientific research and medical research, I think we are in danger of losing those controls because of these issues of reciprocity and uh, non-cash token effect. And I think it's really important that all of us, as we go through training, is fully aware of these potential and, and, and the potentially dangerous conflict of interest that exists. Okay. So I think the last time I was here, I mentioned this stuff before. If all these ethical violations are true, and there is a lot of problems with the integrity of scientific research, what should be true? There should be, you would predict that there would be a lot of medical reversals, right? So if you look at the first study uh, here, these are studies that have more than 1,000 citations. These are celebrated studies, right? These are famous studies that says, you know, everybody quotes it, everybody knows about it. When they try to duplicate it, what percentage of them can be duplicated? 59%, according to the paper by Ioannidis. Similar study, these are not just the New England Journal articles, right? Because it's thought to be one of the more prestigious journals. If you look at the uh, 35 studies that later got retested, how many could they replicate? About half. Okay, and, and you think, well, that's messy clinical science. Let's stick to basic laboratory science where things are much under control. Well, these are 53 landmark studies in the field of hematology oncology. Uh, the study in Nature says actually only 11% of those studies could be replicated. Okay, so one of the predictions of our ethical dilemma is medical reversals will not be rare, and that's exactly what we seem to be finding. Okay, any questions or comments? Yes, John. Yeah, that's an, that's an excellent question. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure that I'm the one who can answer that question definitively, but of course I have my thoughts. Um, I, I think you know why open access was created. The idea, at least in part, was that, for example, the, the most important source of revenue for New England Journal of Medicine is actually not us, right? I mean, even though we might pay a subscription uh, fee for it, that's not the major source. Uh, where do they get most of their money? from advertisements and who advertises in the New England Journal of Medicine, okay? So there's this conflict of interest there that's built in to, even to the prestigious journals, and so they have some built-in conflict to publish papers even if, you know, it might not meet their scientific standard, perhaps. I mean, again, that can't be proven, but that's been one of the big concerns. So at least one, you know, so at least an issue like that would be theoretically mitigated if we didn't have advertising and made it freely available to everybody in the world, including those in the developing world, open access is a great idea, right? Because you know, even for me in Kenya, I might not be able to get the New England Journal or Nature, but I might be able to get an open access journal free. It's fantastic. But somebody has to pay for that, right? So, so who pays for that? 
How does an open access journal work typically? The authors pay for that, right? So the authors pay somewhere from, let's say, $500 to even three or $4,000 to get their article published because somebody has to pay for all that expense. So then what's the incentive of the open access journal? Is to publish because they don't really, you know, there's really no, no skin that they lose if they publish it. So then it creates this phenomena that we show you. Okay. So at some level, it's very disturbing because what it says is it's part of human nature. So if you come up with a rule, it might help to some degree, but it doesn't mean our human nature goes away. Okay. So I don't have a great solution other than that I think we should sometimes pull our heads out of the sand and not pretend that the society that we live in is this, you know, this whole bunch of, uh, of uh, people who have no conflict of interest, no, no desire to gain the system. And I don't want to, and that's not to say that we should be overly skeptical or cynical about everything, but it does say that we should be, we should have a healthy skepticism Okay, and then we should we should try to at least do our best to be aware of them and then try to mitigate them. <laughs>